Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Jesus is speaking, and this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Consider not the morrow, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, or wherewith ye shall be clothed, but consider first the kingdom of God, and all these things, shall be added unto you. The focus of our study time today is designed to help us understand the biblical balance of lifestyles that we are called upon to live as sojourners and citizens of a constitutional republic. The Bible, of course, is to be our guide as we live out our lives here upon the earth. And it is to become, as the psalmist said, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we are to hide its truths in our hearts that we might not sin against God. The Bible is full of thou shalt's and thou shalt not's. The shouts and the shout knots are designed by God in His Holy Word, given to us knowing in order that we might know the will of God and that we might do the will of God. And while it's certainly important for us to know the will of God, it is imperative for us to understand that God's will is designed in its ultimate purpose to provide for us that which is best as we live from day to day. God has set forth His will for us that directs us to that which is the most profitable for us. We tend to think of God on His throne in His supreme honor and glory as dictating a matter of life to us that is to His benefit or to His glory. But the purpose we study in the Word of God is clearly that we might be guided into that path and that journey of life that would be the most productive and the most joyous for us. Now the obstacle to our making good decisions is ignorance. Ignorance of what God has revealed to us in His Word and ignorance of how He wants us to apply that day by day. And unfortunately, there's not a thou shalt or thou shalt not for every decision, for every choice that we have to make. The obstacle then being ignorance, it is our intent day by day to examine the Word of God and to find in it both what He wants us to do and how He has enabled us to do that. God wants us to do what He has revealed for one reason though, and that is that it will be the most profitable for us. Now that's contradictory to the other religions of the world, but we recognize that to be the central truth of the Word of God. God has revealed to us three aspects 
of his will. That which we call his directive will, then his permissive will, and then his overruling will. In the directive will of God, that's the most profitable for us. His permissive will is what he will tolerate from us, and his overruling will is how he actually protects us from ourselves when we make faulty decisions. Now I bring up these three aspects of God's will as we explore the subject of our study this morning. I titled the message, Sojourners and Citizenship, Biblically Balancing Your Lifestyle in a Constitutional Republic. This is a message that hits at where we live where we live in the United States of America, where we live in the midst of the circumstances that we encounter day by day, and where we live in view of God's plan and what He has revealed to us. This week we're celebrating the signing of the Declaration of Independence back in the year 1776. We're not signing... All that uh, we're not recognizing and celebrating uh, the Constitution of America, but the initial stages of the Declaration of Independence. It took a while to get that Constitution uh, developed, and uh, it took a lot of men with willingness to butt heads against one another, and then to go to the uh, go to church and spend some time in prayer when they had uh, areas of disagreement that they needed to reconcile. And so we celebrate the signing of that Declaration of Independence. The freedom bell that rang that day suffered a crack in it. And I believe that crack to be by God's design as a warning of just how fragile the freedom that they were establishing for generations to come would be. It was signified by the fragileness of the bell as we recognize the challenges that we relate to day by day to preserve those freedoms. One of the founders of that document of the Constitution was asked, what form of government have you given us? Have you given us a king or have you given us a republic? And the founder answered, we have given you a constitutional republic if you can keep it. You see, the founders understood that The perpetuation of this form of government required faith in the reality of a creator and a morality that was based on the Bible. They believed the Bible would have to remain a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, that we would have to hide its truths in our heart and not sin against God in order for this kind of government to preserve. 
The Bible was the primary resource, as a matter of fact, for developing the principles of the Constitution. There are over 1,500 references to the Bible in the drafting of the Constitution of these United States. They were attempting to to bring about and establish a more perfect union. It's interesting to note in the in the pursuit of history that as they began to uh, decide on what kind of government to formulate, socialism was the top of the list. They set out with the intent to design a socialist republic. Most of the colonies had operated under that premise, and certainly the pilgrim uh, that came over and established the Plymouth Colony, uh, that was a socialistic form of government as they began to establish themselves. But it was pointed out in the pursuit of discussion concerning a form of government that we are told in Second Thessalonians uh, that even when we were with you, Paul said, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, he should not eat. And that was the basis for their abandoning the pursuit of a socialist form of government and adopting then a constitutional republic. The understanding that the Bible had to be taught in public schools was uh, a almost a unanimous consent on the part of the founding fathers. There was an atheist or two among the founding fathers, but the dominant understanding was that the Word of God would have to be taught in public schools, that if men could, young men did not learn to read, they could not read the Bible. And if they did not read the Bible, this kind of freedom would not last. So a major rewriting of textbooks occurred though then in our uh, trying to be established as a nation, uh, we, we made it along for a long period of time, but in 1926, there was an attempt to make some changes in our nation. I have stated many times that quotation, and all of you perhaps are familiar with it this morning, that says, he who controls the present controls the past. And he who controls the past controls the future. The understanding of that statement is that those that are in power and control today can rewrite history. And by rewriting history, they can then disguise the original intent of our founding fathers And in doing so, they can reshape what lies ahead of us in the future. Well, that statement is based upon that fact then that by rewriting history, the past, misrepresenting what the intent was of the original founding fathers, 
we are able then to proceed with changing the structure of our government by misinterpreting the intent of the founding fathers. I point out to you that in 1926, though, those that were in control of our educational system rewrote the textbooks. And uh, certainly the evidence of controlling the past by those that are in power in the present in order to shape the future has manifested itself in our day. By demeaning the character and the intent of the original founding fathers, the socialists of today are tearing down statues, they are changing the names of schools, and they change and charge the founders of our nation with crime because they have been successful in rewriting history. Although the founding fathers were set against, very strongly set against the establishment of a national religion, the vast majority of them were dogmatic in their conviction that this constitutional republic would only survive as long as the Bible was the basis for our social order and for the conduct of the citizens of the nation. And because the founders had fled the abuses and tyranny of a state-controlled church, they were very quick to denounce the perversions of established religion with its creeds and with its doctrine, while at the same time urging a faith in God and a dependency upon the Bible itself. Their strong denunciations of established creeds and of denominationalism led then to a misinterpretation and a misunderstanding of their position as as Christians. And so the revisionists have said, They were deists and they were atheists. They were not Christian. Listen to some of their quotes. Listen to some of their arguments as they attempted to put down denominationalism. I spent a considerable period of time this week in reviewing a a whole host of papers uh, containing quotes of the founding fathers that I used when I was a high school student in a classroom debate with the history teacher of that class who was determined to present a distorted view of the faith of our founding fathers. He and I used quotes from the same founders. But quotes always have to be understood in the context in which they are made. The founders uh, had so much resentment uh, directed at the church, the Church of England, basically the Episcopal Church today, uh, messing in its government affairs and attempts to indoctrinate 
them with their liturgical interpretations and viewpoints, with their ecclesiastical theology, that they those quotes seem to be anti-Christian if they're taken out of context. They were anti-denominational, and they were anti-creed, they were anti-confession, they focused upon the Bible itself as being our guide. So my history teacher and others uh, then took those statements out of context in an attempt to persuade people that the founding fathers were deist or atheist in order that they might reinterpret the previous interpretation that the original intent of the founding fathers had. The founders repeatedly stressed their belief in God, their faith in Jesus Christ, and the Bible to be the guide to morality and to instruct us in social order as the only means by which we might preserve this constitutional republic we call the United States of America. Today, Christians, however, have become a minority in America. Our influence and our control of morality has been sacrificed first at the altar of compromise, then at the altar of permissiveness, and then in the areas of freedom to give up those God-given rights in order to pacify another viewpoint instead of staying with the principles that a had established our freedom for so many years. We have become that minority, and today, as a result of that, our freedoms are seriously in jeopardy. We can say, however, thank God that this past week, the Supreme Court has issued a number of rulings that bring us back in those simple, small areas, uh, at least to the original structure of the Constitution. We have a long ways to go, but at least some freedoms have been restored that were taken away primarily by the Christian Baker and the Christian website designer with a Supreme Court ruling in favor of them and saying that the the courts cannot compel us to state something that we don't believe in. And so that's encouraging anyway. The Old Testament, Israel, functioned under a different structure than we function. They were to operate as a theocracy. That is, truly, as one nation under God. God would be their king. And the law, the Mosaic law, would be administered by the Levites and the priests. But they weren't content. They wanted to be like other nations. And so they demanded that they have a king 
like other nations. The law and the prophets continued to be the structure for knowing and doing the will of God, but they now had the added responsibility and allegiance to a human king, and so they were affected by his whims and his desires. But theirs truly was one nation under God, directed by the law of God, and enforced and emphasized by the holy prophets. But we live in a different age. We live in a different dispensation. There's very little in the New Testament that dictates our role or our responsibility as believers in government. Because throughout the writing period of the New Testament, the entire New Testament was written during the Roman Empire. And only that form of government was recognized and established. Our nation started out as a Christian nation, and because we don't have a great deal of information in the New Testament to guide us, and because there's been so little teaching relative to that, there I remember early in my ministry when it was considered blasphemy, to discuss politics in the pulpit. And that's what brought us to where we are today. Because we stopped discussing the morality and we stopped discussing the role that the believer is to have and the social order that is to be followed. And so what was once identified as a Christian nation has now flatly denied any identification as a Christian nation. In your study guide, I provided four different Supreme Court rulings that stipulated America is a Christian nation. By the way, these rulings by the Supreme Court have never been reversed. And so according to what the Supreme Court of the United States has issued... We are a Christian nation, contradictory to what we see in practice and certainly contradictory to what Barack Obama stated that America is not a Christian nation. As a matter of fact, it's one of the largest Muslim nations, he stated while he was president. In 1892... Justice Josiah David Brewer on the Supreme Court, writing in the decision that was issued uh, to the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, the unanimous Supreme Court decision, which has never been overturned, held as a matter of law, fact, uh, uh, history, and fact, that this is a Christian nation. Here's the reasoning the Supreme Court gave. Because our laws and public institutions were founded on biblical principles from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Brewer continues, this is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, 
there is a single voice making this affirmation. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. This is a Christian nation. There's an official foundation of American law and civil government, a canon, if you will, which must include consideration of at least four separate decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court which assert that the United States is uh, in law, fact, and history and should properly be termed officially a Christian nation. Because of the foundation of our laws upon principles of the Ten Commandments and the Old Testament, these court decisions include Vital versus Gerard's executors, uh, Marsh versus Chambers, uh, the Mormon Church versus the United States, and then the Holy Trinity Church versus the United States. I've included the rulings of those courts in your study guide today. Vital versus Gerard's executors, the the declaration of the Supreme Court that was ushered said, the United States Supreme Court held in unanimous opinion, read by Joseph Joseph's story, ruled as follows. Christianity is not to be maliciously and openly reviled and blasphemed against. Pardon me? <laughs> the Supreme Court ruled that this is a an issue of the Supreme Court. It's unnecessary for us, however, to consider the establishment of a school or college for the propagation of deism or for any other form of infidelity. Such a case would not be presumed to exist in a Christian country. Why may not laymen instruct in the general principles of Christianity as well as ecclesiastics? And we cannot overlook the blessings which such laymen by their conduct as well as by their instruction may, nay, must impart to the youthful pupils. Why may not the Bible and especially the New Testament without note or comment be read and taught as a divine revelation in the school. In general precepts, its general precepts expanded, expounded. Its evidences explained and its glorious principles of morality inculcated. Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? It is also said in truly that the Christian religion is a part of the common law of Pennsylvania. That was in 1884. In 1890, there was a Supreme Court ruling with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the United States of America. I find this one really profound as it relates to Rulings uh, we are encountering today with same-sex marriage. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled that polygamy could not be practiced in the United States, stating that it is contrary to the spirit of Christianity 
and the civilization which Christianity has produced in the Western world. If not polygamy, but same-sex marriage, homosexuality and lesbianism and bestiality which are an abomination to God are herein in this ruling in 1890 by the Supreme Court that it was a Christian nation and could not tolerate polygamy. In 1892, then uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling of the Church of the Holy Trinity against the United States. This prayerful ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court chronicles Christianity's central role in shaping America's political institutions and traditions. Our laws and institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of Mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and institutions are emphatically Christian. No purpose of action against religion can be imputed to any legislative state or national because this is a religious people. There is This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. The commission to Christopher Columbus recited that it is hoped that by God's assistance, some of the continents and islands in the oceans will be discovered. The first colonial grant made Sir Walter Ridey in the year 1584 and the grant authorizing him to enact statutes of government of the proposed colony provided that they be not against the true Christian faith. The first charter of Virginia granted by King James I in 1606 commenced the grant in these words. In proper in propagating of Christian religions to such people as yet live in darkness. Language of similar import may be found in the subsequent charters of the colony in 1609 and in 1611, and the same is true of the various charters granted to other colonies. In language more or less emphatic is the establishment of the Christian religion declared to be one of the purposes of the grant. The celebrated compact of the pilgrims in the Mayflower in 1620 recites, having undertaken the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. The fundamental orders of Connecticut under which a provincial government was instituted in 1638-39, commenced with this declaration. And well knowing where a people are gathered together, the word of God requires to maintain the peace and union, there should be an orderly and decent government established according to God to maintain and preserve the liberty and the purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ which we now profess, of the said gospel, which is now practiced amongst us. 
in the Charter of the Privileges given by William Penn to the province of Pennsylvania in 1701, it is recited, No people can be truly happy, though under the greatest enjoyment of civil liberties, if abridged of their religious profession and worship. Coming near to the present time, the Declaration of Independence recognizes the presence of the divine in human affairs in these words. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men were created equal and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. According, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world, uh, reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth because of a general recognition of this truth that we are Christian nation. The question, the question has seldom been presented to the courts. There is no dishonesty. The question has seldom, has seldom been presented to the courts. There is a universal language pervading them all, having one meaning. They affirm and reaffirm this is a religious nation. These are not individuals saying declarations of private persons. They are organic or uh, utterances. They speak the voice of the entire people being, uh, and while because of a general recognition of this truth, the question has seldom been presented, we find it in the epigraphs versus the commonwealth. It is decided that Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law. Not Christianity with an established church, but Christianity with the liberty of the conscience of all men and in the people versus the church, uh, uh, versus, excuse me, Ruggles, uh, Chancellor Kent, the great commentator on American law, speaking as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New York said, the people of this state uh, in common with the people of this country profess the general doctrines of Christianity as a rule of their faith and practice. We are a Christian people, and the morality of the country is deeply engrafted upon Christianity. And on that document goes as it concludes uh, that America is ruled to be a Christian nation. Be hard to get that kind of ruling, even today, from the conservative uh, justices that are on today's Supreme Court. Another ruling in 1931, U.S. versus McIntosh, the the applicant, uh, the the McIntosh was one who had made application to. Uh, the United States for citizenship. But he said because his belief in God, he could not sign the citizenship agreement that he would be willing to go to war. Did you know we have such a thing in our documents that's still preserved that in the naturalization of a 
citizen to the United States, they have to affirm their commitment to go to war to defend the United States. Well, McIntosh was a pacifist and did not, his interpretation of scripture was uh, that he was not to go to war. The Supreme Court ruled uh, that unless he changed his opinion and signed the document, he could not be granted citizenship because his was an interpretation uh, of the Scripture that the nation and the Bible did not support as being a Christian nation. Uh, They did not support his view of Christianity. It had to be based solely upon the Word of God. But of course, we are living in 2023. And the justices have come through the years and justices have gone. And the Supreme Court has been in a state of flux, tossed about by political persuasion, presidential appointments, and today we are with former President Obama's declaration, uh, America is not a Christian nation, but we are one of the largest Muslim nations. We now are at a place where once polygamy was banned, today we have same-sex marriages. A child's right to change their sexual designation without any parental permission, with the aid of the school, no less. While parental rights have been stripped away, America certainly cannot be identified in practice as a Christian nation. That was our heritage. That's where we came from. That was the original intent of our founding fathers. And under the Old Testament, there was a clear guideline for Israel. But under the New Testament, we raised the question, what is a Christian's responsibility today to government and how can we best live out our design that God has given us as sojourners? So the question is, what is the role of the believer in regard to government? That's the question that we must answer in our day-by-day pursuit of doing the will of God. In order to understand our role, we need to remind you that there are five divine institutions that God has established. And I won't spend a long time on this point because in a number of recent studies, we've explored these. And so let me just summarize them this morning. The divine institution of volition, we like the term free will, uh, it's a little more literate for most of us than the term volition. But this is a, reverent, uh, a reference to our being endowed by our Creator with volition or free will. He created us in His image. And the, about the only comparison I can find between man and God 
image-wise is in this area of free will. He gave us the ability to choose to make choices and we are accountable to Him for those choices. Secondly is the divine institution of marriage. He created us male and female, structured us physically, soulishly, and spiritually for one man and one woman relationships. He created two genders for the propagation of the race and to provide the foundation for family life and social order. The third institution is the divine institution of family that we've already mentioned. And contrary to the utterance uh, of the former letter, uh, former first lady, it does not take a village to raise your children. Contrary to the claim of the imposter that now sits as president in the White House, children do not belong to the government. The family structure is essential for well-ordered society. The divine institution of government is used in the broad sense of that structure that provides for the welfare of the human race living together in a structured social order. It's required to provide civility in order for society to function, not designed to provide equality and equity. And uh, rather, it is given to provide a structure for social order. The divine institution of the church has also been established. And throughout history, God established uh, as his representatives, various administrators to manage his estate. And in these last days, he has appointed the church as a divine institution to manage his affairs here on planet Earth. We're unlike any administrative stewards in the previous dispensations. We are described as the body of Christ, members of the body of Christ, and to function as members of the body of Christ in particular. So the Bible indicates that these institutions provide structure and they delegate authority in order to maintain civility in each of the areas that we've mentioned of society and social order. In each of these, we are instructed to give recognition to the powers that be, recognizing that God has structured these institutions for the welfare of the race. Our submission in authority in marriage, in family, in government, and in the church is to be in harmony with God's established chain of command. The government is not to intrude in the institution of the church, and that's documented in the Holy Scriptures. In some ways, we as believers in America 
share a dual citizenship. We are citizens of the United States, but we are also citizens of the kingdom of God. So I raise the question, what is the role of the believer in regard to government today? The answer to that question has to be determined by each believer as he or she identifies their particular spiritual gifts and God's directive will in their lives day by day. You see, it's our individual gifting and calling that is personal to each of us and can only be defined by the Holy Spirit giving us understanding and direction personally and individually. There's some basic guidelines that are set out in the Word of God that can help us understand that, but in the final analysis it comes down to each one of us. And while our gifting does not change, the application and the specific use of that gifting is subject to change as God uses us in His particular service. Most of my ministry has been outside the government. But there are, uh, there were 14 months in my life when the main thrust of my ministry was directly involved in government and in community affairs. I can understand clearly now as I reflect back upon it that God moved me to Pittsburgh, California in 1968 to perform a specific assignment. That assignment involved my getting involved in government and community affairs in order to change the community's attitude, its perception, and its responses to the churches that were not Catholic. The newspaper was hostile to the church. The local newspaper, a church could not even buy advertisement in that paper in 1968. They had attempted for uh, in a number of ways to get some recognition. Now, a few years prior to that, they couldn't even own property in the city of Pittsburgh, California. But a lawsuit turned that around and they were allowed, churches were allowed to buy property. But the paper was controlled by a hard uh, widow woman that uh, was Catholic and anti-Protestant and would not even sell advertisement to the, any church. I discovered that the first Sunday I was in town. I said to the deacons in a meeting that afternoon, uh, do we have a person that's in charge of public relations, a PR person to put, put an article in the paper that the church has a new pastor? Oh, they said, Pastor, we can't do that. We can't even buy advertisement, let alone put any kind of news article uh, 
in the paper. So I said, well, we'll see about that. I had no intent what I was going to do. I knew my my objective was to right that situation, but uh, uh, I had not prepared a script or uh, any thoughts as I went, uh, probably motivated a little by righteous indignation and maybe even more than that by my own personal agitation. Uh, I went into the newspaper office and the and ask if I could speak to the publishing editor. Her receptionist said, do you have an appointment? And I said, no, ma'am, I've just moved to town. I just moved in this weekend with my business, and I uh, would like to talk with her. What is your business? And I said, well, it's insurance. So the she said, well... You, you have to have an appointment. I, I can see about making an appointment. Uh, what do you want to talk with her about? And she heard the conversation from her office and she said, send the young man in. <clears throat> young man in. Yeah, I was in my twenties. And, uh, so I went in and, uh, I, I had made the statement to the, uh, receptionist that I, uh, was the vice president of the uh, Chowchilla Junior Chamber of Commerce and had just moved to town. And so she said to me, uh, so you, you've come to town. You, you were the, you're the vice president of the JCs. I didn't know when I made that statement that her advertising uh, manager was the president of the JCs in that town, which opened a door that I was not aware of. But she said, well, have a seat. And I, I sat down and we began to talk a little. And she said, so what brings you to town? And I said, well, my work does. And she said, well, you said you were insurance. Uh, uh, what kind of insurance? And I said, we have uh, life insurance. We have health insurance. We have a retirement program that is out of this world. And she said, what's the name of the company that you work for? And I said, Temple Baptist Church. It got real quiet. (laughs) She said, I've been had, haven't I? And I said, well, that's up to you. So we continued our conversation. She asked if I could go with her to lunch. So I called my wife and told her I would not be home for lunch. I would be going with the publishing editor to lunch. When we came back, she took me upstairs and introduced me to the ladies' home page and told her, Pastor Welch is new in town. He's the new pastor at Temple Baptist Church. We're going to be starting a church page. Pastor Welch will be writing a weekly article and he will direct you in putting the church page together. You're in charge of it, but he will direct you in doing that. Her mouth flew open, her chin hit the desk, and uh, the she said, "Oh, close your mouth. Just do what I've done, what I've said, and give this man anything he wants." When she went out of the room, she said, what did you do to her? I said, nothing that I'm aware of. 
But I wrote five guest editorials while I was there in that 14 months. And that week we started a church page. My picture was on the front page of the paper as the new pastor at Kemple Baptist and the establishment of a church page as well as my article uh, mentioned in that. For 14 months, I was involved. The church said, stay out of our hair. We don't want any programs. We don't want anything except Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Stay out of our hair. Go hunting, go fishing, go do something. So I got involved in the city. Local government was hostile to the churches. Predominantly Catholic and was very hostile to the churches. We turned that around. The racial riots in 1968, Martin Luther King had been assassinated, threatened to destroy the community. God turned that around. Racial riots, illegal drugs, those sort of things were commonplace. God turned that around. The hospital was going to a terminal. I sat on the hospital board. God turned the hospital program around. The Cub Scout program was in trouble. I became the Cub Scout master. God changed that situation. The Junior Chamber of Commerce had been pretty much a drinking club. It became a social order and I was to, I was running for president of it when I resigned to go to the church in San Jose. The Ministerial Association focus was upon getting everybody equal housing and equal opportunity. Nothing about the gospel. I'm sorry to say that was still in order when I left, though I was not a member of it. My ministry was the local government and the community because that was God's design. When I left there, I never served in public office after that. And I left there in 1969. God gifts us. God moves us. God places us in places of service And in doing that, he expects us to live out our design as he has set it forth. New Testament believers have a citizenship in the country in which they live, but we are sojourners by God's definition. Our title is sojourner. But our role is defined by our spiritual gifting and the circumstances that we encounter in our daily life. Our present study in the epistles, in the epistle of Second Peter has focused on that role. That's the primary thrust that we are sojourners. So, Although this is the primary intent of 
and motivation for my message, your role as a sojourner is revealed in two ways. First of all, we must understand our gifting. And secondly, then we must understand our circumstances. Circumstances are used by God as divine appointments for us to live out our design. Your gifting is determined by God Himself. And it's bestowed through the sovereign act of the Holy Spirit. It's important for you to discover your gifting so that you can be a good steward because that's what you're responsible for. And that you can have an honorable accounting when you stand before God. There are nine gifts that are identified clearly in Scripture that stand out, that identify the category of your service as a sojourner to God. Administration, teaching, service, exhortation, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, mercy, helps, and giving. The use of those gifts will be determined by the circumstances that God directs and brings about in your life. The administration gift, I always thought was one of my weaker gifts because I'd rather do it myself because I can do a better job and don't have to put up with people in doing it. But when I went to Pittsburgh, California, that was the most prominent that was operating. The church didn't want teaching. I took it to the community in a variety of ways. The gift of administration then became useful as we developed Bible colleges and seminaries. Teaching, service, exhortation, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, mercy, helps, giving. You have at least one of those. Maybe a package of them to support the particular area of service that God has designed you for. The use of our gifts then is to be determined by our circumstances. Nothing happens by chance. There's no such thing as good luck or bad luck. I used to say if I didn't have bad luck, I wouldn't have any luck at all. But I recognize there is no such thing as luck. No, all things are the result of cause and effect. We should always view our circumstances then as divine appointments that God has established. And this is especially true of believers because our role as sojourners indicates that we are here to do business for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thankfully, we've been able to operate in the past in an environment that has at least been tolerant of our doing the king's business 
But that's changed. Today, as we see a more hostile attitude to believers. So the challenge, as we approach this annual celebration of the signing of the Declaration of Independence this year, is to reaffirm your commitment to Christ and become more diligent in recognizing the divine appointments. That's, I believe, the biggest weakness that I see in this plan of gifting and sojourners that God has established is our recognizing how to use our gift, when to use our gift, where to use our gifts through the circumstances that He has developed. We have the right to vote as citizens. And along with that right comes the responsibility in this constitutional republic. Christians can shape our nation's morals, our nation's objectives. But we've backed off and the pagans and the hedonists have come in and shaped it. The Apostle Paul was dedicated to his role as an apostle and the spiritual gifting that was given to him. But he used his citizenship as a Roman to take the gospel message to Rome itself, even to the house of Caesar. Your role as a sojourner is to serve as a foreigner living alongside the locals to do the king's business. But you function as a steward, as a servant, as a husbandman, as an ambassador. And in all of that, I would challenge you this celebration of our signing of the Declaration of Independence as a nation that was started out and was identified for a long time as a Christian nation, I would challenge you to consider first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these other things God will add to you. We're sojourners. But it begins with salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let us pray. Our Father, we give You thanks for Your Word. We give You thanks for the circumstances. We give You thanks for Your Spirit. Father, we thank You that we have had what freedom we have had in our own country to represent You We pray for courage as the days change and the circumstances become harsher. 
We pray for courage and commitment to live out our design before the locals that we might properly represent our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and do the King's business. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.